Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good? You look good. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. If you're new to Bible study, it's uh, way in the beginning. It's the uh, second book of the Bible, so go there. We're in week three of this series that we've called Worship Matters. And uh, we're walking through the book of Exodus really since the beginning of January. And the reason that we're talking about uh, worship is because it really matters. And we all worship something. And what you worship matters. And how you worship matters. And, and, and the way that you worship, all those things matter. And they inform you and they change you and they form you. They do all those kinds of things. And it really, really matters. And the truth is, regardless of what you believe, regardless of what you believe about Jesus or the Bible or the kind of church you grew up in, or if you don't even believe that there is a God, we all worship something and you were created to worship. And we all experience it. Like, if you've, if you've seen a sunset or a sunrise or some kind of beautiful thing like that, and it stirred something in you, it's because God created you with eternity in your heart. And to begin to kind of tweak at something that's deep down in the DNA of who you are. It's why a bunch of you surf, not because you can, because you can't. You're not very good. You can kind of catch a wave sometimes, but you just like being out there in the water and in the waves because it just, you just feel something. And that something is that God created that something in you. It's why we're so moved, not more of you than me, by art and music and poetry and things like that. Because it stirs something deep in there. It's why we love movies so much. Because we love the story of life and death and redemption and reconciliation. And, and it's a part of the fingerprint of God because we all yearn for things. It's why churches all over the world today are celebrating Palm Sunday. Because they'll, you know, churches like the church that I went to as a kid, you'd come in on Palm Sunday and they'd hand you a palm thing. And you're like, sweet, we got props at church. Remember this? And all over church today, people will be waving palms and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the reason they do that is because it happened in Matthew chapter 21. But if you dig into what actually happened on the triumphal entry, the people in the city that grab the palm branches and are, and are waving them saying, Hosanna, which means save us. Not like in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, forgive us of our sins and give us your righteousness. Not that kind of salvation, but it was more political alignment. Hey, you're going to be king next, I think. So we want to get on, on the train with you so that we get blessed. Save us, save us. That's what Hosanna means. And, and so a part of the reason we don't do the palm branch thing, and if your church, you know, if you're going with Janana this evening to a Palm Sunday service, don't bust them up about the palm branches. But the problem with it is, in the text, the people that pick up the palm branches and are singing Hosanna, they lean over and they go, now who is this? So they might not be worshiping Jesus Christ. They might just be worshiping because we are wired to worship. Every single one of us, we worship stuff. And it's a part of the way God created us. We have this longing or this desire to just worship stuff. And a part of it is because, well, the real reason is because when God created the very first man, the very first human being, the Bible says in the, in the book of Genesis that he gets the dust of the earth together and he forms it, it says, into the form of a man. He's not like a, a man yet, but he's just the form of a man. And then God, the creator, leans down and the Bible says, breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. That word breath is the same word as wind. It's the same word as spirit. The Hebrew word is ruach. And he breathes the breath of life into the first human being. And when the first human being opens his eyes, the first thing he sees is the face of his creator. And then when the fall comes, we're separated from that kind of relationship with God. But that's still imprinted in our souls. Every single one of us have this longing, this desire, this yearning to get back to meaning and purpose. To be face to face with the one that made us. It's why David would say in the book of Psalms, the 84th one, he says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, 
for the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And he says again in Psalm 27, verse 4, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And what David yearns for and what we yearn for is for more, is for meaning, is for purpose. Really what we're yearning for is that face-to-face moment with God. It's why uh, the great 21st century prophet Bono says, I have climbed the highest mountains, I have run through fields, I've scaled city walls, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for because we're all looking for is the presence or the transcendence of God. The only thing that can satisfy an insatiable eternal soul is an almighty sovereign God. And there are some hints at it in this world, but they do not fully and finally satisfy. And it's because we were created to worship the one that created us. And so it's with that in mind that we've been walking through um, the last part of the book of Exodus. And so uh, you, you'll know that in, as, we, as we get to Exodus chapter 33, you'll remember that, that Moses has been up on this mountain with God getting the Ten Commandments. And so we spent about six weeks there. That, that the perfect God gives this perfect law, and we're perfect lawbreakers. And his command is be perfect, because he is perfect. And then we get the Ten Commandments, and we go, Houston, there's a problem. We can't make it past the first one. But then right on the heels of that, we talked about this at the beginning of this series, that God comes to Moses and shares his heartbeat, his desire, that God wants to tabernacle or dwell with his people. And remember, we talked about Jesus is the personification. He is the fulfillment, the sum total fulfillment of God's desire to tabernacle or dwell with his people. Not only is he the way, but he also made a way. And then last week, we discussed that while, while God and Moses are hanging up on the top of the mountain, getting um, the instructions for the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments, meanwhile, the Israelites, God's people, are down at the bottom of the mountain worshiping idols. And I figured it'd be a big waste of our time for us to just talk about how bad it is to worship golden calves 3,400 years ago. And so let's identify some idols in our own life. And I went first because I'm the leader and threw up all over the stage. And I'm really surprised that a lot of you came back, okay? Because I know some people really like for their pastor to have it together, and I don't. And so I understand from Facebook and a bunch of your disciple groups that for many of us it was a rough week because we just unpacked our idols and we're all a bunch of idol worshipers. And the good news is that Jesus loves you anyway. And then and that's, where we pick, that's where we find ourselves right now in Exodus chapter 33. In verse, verses 1 through 6, I just got to kind of paraphrase a little bit here. In verses 1 through 6, essentially, God comes to Moses and says, Okay, Moses, now you go on to the promised land, okay? Because I promised, and I'm a God that keeps my promises. I'm a covenant God. But you go ahead. Go ahead to the promised land. But your people that you led out of Egypt, they're a bunch of stiff-necked, idol-worshipping people. And so, y'all go ahead without me to the promised land. I don't think I'm going to go. Because I'm afraid, because you're stiff-necked people, I might kill you on the way. So y'all go without me. I'll send an angel. You'll get the land of milk and honey. Everything I promise will be yours. And so Moses is totally bummed. And so in verses, 7, in verses 7 through 11, Moses begins to reminisce on the presence of God. And Moses begins to remember those times where Moses had this thing called the tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle. That was for all the folks. He had this special little room reserved for him and God called the tent of meeting. And he would set this thing up. And the Bible says that the presence of God, the glory of God, would descend upon the tent of meeting. And Moses and God would hang out in the tent of meeting. And it says this, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So when God tells Moses, Moses, you go into the promised land, you'll get milk, you'll get honey, you'll get the land, it's all good, but I don't think I'm going to go with you. The first thought Moses has is like, wait a minute, but the best times of my entire life were, God, when we would sit down face to face and you would, you would talk to me like a friend. 
And then that's where we pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 33. Moses says to the Lord, See, you, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You see, that's like relational language. I know you by name. And you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, and then God said, because remember, God said, at first, I'm not going to go with you because I might kill y'all because y'all are so jacked up and I'm perfect and I don't know if I can put up with you anymore. And then, and then Moses is like, oh, but you don't understand, God. What we really want more than anything is you. And then God says here, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. You see, and, then, and that's the best news Moses could get because what Moses understood is this. It's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to receive the blessings of God. It's not enough, because what Moses could do, he's going to get a second copy of the Ten Commandments in just a couple chapters, okay? What Moses could do is say, hey, look, I got the Ten Commandments, I've got the instructions for the tabernacle, I can gather all the people together, I can teach them all the stories, I can talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah, we can go through all the stuff, but God, what we really need is you. We need you to be there. It's not enough to just know about you, but God is not like, a, like something that you study to know about, but you have to experience the presence of God. It's not enough to know about him, but, but he is to be experienced. Every, everybody knows this. Remember before you had kids? If you're a parent, remember before you had kids how you were an expert on kids before you actually had them? Remember that? I was a professional expert. I was a youth pastor for many, many years before I had children. And I remember just, I knew everything about kids until I had them. Because I had read the books, and I was a professional youth pastor, and I would have these students in my, in my youth group, and they were jacked up. And I'd be like, what is wrong with you? And then I'd meet their parents, and I'd go, Okay, okay, that makes more sense, right? And I had instructions for them, and I knew what to tell them, knew how to do everything. And, or, remember before, like if you're a parent, before you had kids, remember you'd be at a restaurant, there'd be some crying kid, and you'd be so annoyed by them? You'd look at the parent and be like, would you control your child? My child will never act that way ever, right? And then you had the experience of your own children, and you're in the same restaurant, and the same kid is crying, and what do you think? That demon-possessed baby is just tormenting those precious parents, right? Everything changes. Or people would tell you, like when Gretchen got pregnant, people would tell us, listen, you're going to experience a love like we just can't describe. We'd hear that, and we'd think, I know, I have a puppy. I know what it's like to love something cute. It's just different. There's a difference between, like, leafing through a name book and naming your son or daughter. It's just different. It's like this, this past year, I went elk hunting. In Colorado. And I know some people are like, ah, are all the stories elk hunting? Yes. <laughs> if you don't like them, just plant your own church, talk about petunias. I don't care. But that's what I do. I go hunting. And so I got this gift. It was a gift. I got to go elk hunting in Colorado. And when I found out, when it is booked, I'm telling you, I'm stoked. And so I get an elk hunting magazines. I Google everything I can on elk hunting. I buy these books about elk. I learn everything I can about elk and elk hunting. I talk to some of the just men of God in our church that are elk hunters. And they share stories and they share equipment. They give me the special kind of gear that I need to go elk hunting. I also find out you got to get in shape to go elk hunting. Because, you know, you're, you're chasing elk around at, at 10,000 feet in Colorado going up and down mountains. And the biggest mountain in Jacksonville is the Beach Boulevard Bridge, you know. So you got to hike up that thing, right? right. It's all we got, but whatever. We got the beach. It's worth it. And so, and so I'm, I do. I, I know everything about it. You ask me 
what, what I need to know. I know it. I know it. I even, you know, you go to the range, do all those kinds of things. But it wasn't until my, my guide drops me off on the top of this canyon and I'm actually elk hunting on the Colorado River. And the sun comes up and it's just incredible. I mean, it's just hard to explain. Incredible. It was way better than the book. And then I look down and this five by five mature elk comes walking out. And, and I put the gun up, and I'm looking through the scope. And I'd been to the range. I even had targets that were shaped like elk. And when I shot them at the range, it was like, bam, you know, no problem. But when a real 1,000-pound elk is standing 405 yards down in this canyon, you think, this is my shot. I can't, <clears throat> I can't control my heartbeat. Or I can't breathe. Oh my, I mean, freaking out, sweating, you know, pulling my hat off. And I, this is my chance. And if you don't understand, it's because you've never been elk hunting. Here we go. And then... Boom, I didn't even know if I hit him. And just keep, you know, I'd shoot, he'd jump, he'd jump, I'd shoot. And then I look and he goes down. And then I go and get my guide who's a Colorado cowboy. Like a legit, the man from Snowy River kind of dude, all right? If you don't know that movie, ask your parents. All right, and so, and we, we get these horses together. And he leans over to me as we're about to get on these horses and horseback down into the canyon, down to the Colorado River. And, and he's like, you ever ridden a horse before? Sort of. Like... Like youth group trail ride, you know, where I think the nose of mine's connected to the butt of that one. It's that, that much different than the Walmart ride out front. You know what I mean? So we can own these like real cowboy horses and we're going down. And he's like, hey, we're going through rough terrain, so hold on tight. And I'm telling you, it was rough. And we ride down there and then there's my elk and we, we, we field dress it and pack it up on these pack horses. And then we are riding back up the canyon, man. I'm talking about the horses just digging and I'm holding on. And at one point, I just arms up, hands out, worshiping the almighty God. Outside of the most important things in your life, like getting saved, getting married, making babies, having babies. It, it's, it, it was the greatest three or four hours of my entire life, I'm telling you. And if you don't get it, it's because you're not a hunter. I could tell you all about it, but until you, if you are a hunter right now, you want to leave right now and go turkey hunting, don't you? So, I get it. And if you're like, what is he talking about? See, God's not just something that you know about, but he is to be experienced, like in a relationship. That's what Moses is saying here. And that's why in 15, Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, then don't bring us up from here. Moses is saying, God, it's not enough to know about you. We don't, I mean, we will appreciate the land flowing with milk and honey, but we're not looking for milk and honey. We want to be with the one that gives the milk and honey. We want to be with you, not just your blessings. Because it's your presence that matters more than anything else. We need you. The way Paul would say it in the New Testament, Paul would say that he had learned the secret of being content in every situation. Because all kinds of situations would change. But if you have the presence of the Almighty God, that's what matters more than anything else. Verse 16, he says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, Moses is saying, God, it's your present that distinguishes us. Because if you don't go with us, then we're just another empty world religion with rites and rituals and special places for special people and special texts. But if it, your presence, if you're not with us, then it's all just a show. We're just like everybody else, but it is your presence that distinguishes us. Have you ever met somebody like that? Have you ever met a person and you knew them and then something happened and they were a completely different person? I had lunch on Thursday with a 16-year-old. 
and he's just different. He's just different. I've known him for about four or five years, and, and he's, a, he's the son of one of my very best friends, and, and he used to just be just a slacker. I mean, just, you know, my dad would say he's about half worthless, which I don't know what half a worthless is, but that was him, all right? Just a slacker. I mean, a good kid or whatever, but just kind of just living. And then uh, two years ago, he went on a mission trip with our students to Jamaica, and I'm telling you, he encountered the presence of Jesus, the presence of an almighty God, and he's just totally distinct now, totally different. And oh, he's still got the same parents, he still attends the same church, he still goes to the same school, all that stuff's the same, but if you trace it back, the only thing different is that he met Jesus there, and now everything is different. You ever met somebody like that? You ever met somebody like that? I remember when I went to my high school reunion, and they knew me then. And then they looked at my little name tag. I got my name, you know, with my picture. Because, you know, when you get so old, they're like, who are you? Oh, okay, wow. Hey, you know. And, and then it had our occupation and where we live. And mine said pastor. And they were like, what? That kind of thing. There's only one way to explain it. I'm telling you, it's an encounter with the presence of God. And so, so that's, what, that's what Moses is saying God, if you don't go with us, then we're just, we're just like everybody else. But it's your presence that distinguishes us. Verse 17, and then the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So God says, okay, Moses, I will go with you. I will be with you. Verse 18, now Moses is feeling super bold, and he says this, Then please show me your glory. Please. God, show me your glory. Glory is a hard word to translate in the Bible. Um, in Hebrew, it literally means heavy or weightiness. That's what it means. Uh, another way, probably a better way for us to understand it today, what Moses is saying, he's sort of saying, God, how about just show me your essence? I mean, you've revealed yourself to me in kind of um, in veiled ways. Like I saw you in the burning bush. I saw you in the plagues. I see you as a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke. I see that in kind of veiled uh, revelations, but God, what if you just stripped back all the stuff and you just showed me the essence, the unadulterated glory of who you are? Moses is saying, God, I just want to see it all. Don't hold anything back. He, he has no idea what he's asking for and he can't handle it because in 19, here's how God responds. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. This is big. This is big. The God, in a minute, he's going to say, well, you can't really handle my glory, but let me show you what I will show you. I will show you my goodness. Moses says, God, show me your essence, and he doesn't say, okay, here's my law, and here's my judgment. But the essence of God is goodness, sovereignty, grace, and mercy. That's what he says. That's what I'll show you. The essence of who God is. The essence is goodness. Y'all, he's a good dad. And he's sovereign. He's the Lord. He's in charge. No matter what. And he's gracious. And he's merciful. And then he goes to verse 20. But, we got a problem here, Moses. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. In essence, God is saying, hey, listen, Moses. But you got a major problem here. I know you think you want to see my glory. I know you think you want to see my face. But you can't see my face. Because my goodness and my grace and my mercy and my sovereignty, man, they are like a, they are like a, fern, a burning furnace. And if I put anything impure in there, it'll, the only thing that will come out are the things that are pure. Righteousness will be the only thing that stands up to it. And you're not righteous. It will burn you down. You can't handle my glory, Moses. You just can't. God's saying, if I unleash my glory, bro, you ain't going to make it. Verse 21. And the Lord said, but he, he's going to have a little... 
caveat here. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And I think in that moment, God chuckled a little. God was like, you don't even know what I'm talking about. The Christians one day are going to know what I'm talking about because in about, about 1,400 years, Jesus is going to come along and say, Upon this rock I'll build my church. And the rock is the public declaration of that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and, you know, and I know you don't know this, Moses, but preachers will talk about it in 3,400 years. But I know this because I'm God and you're not high. I think that's some little inside joke to himself, about himself. Because he's got to do what he wants, verse 22. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So in other words, God says to Moses, all right, Moses, you want to see my glory? You can't handle my glory. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the rock. I'm going to cover your face. I'm going to go by, and I'm going to drop the afterburners. And then I'm going to pull my hand away, and you're going to see my back and be like, glory. All right, I don't know, you know, a little just afterglow there. I'm like, whoo, and that's all you can handle. It's all you can handle. But you can't see my face. You can't see my face because you, you can't handle it. My face shall not be seen. You see, here's the thing. Is that the face is very, very personal. Very personal. So, like when my, my little girl, Reagan, it happens all the time. She'll be sitting on the couch next to me telling me these stories, and I'm trying to do real serious stuff, like watch March Madness, even though my whole bracket's jacked up or whatever, I'm watching it. And she's just telling me stories about, I mean, you know, gymnast, just all, everything she can think of. Just pick, pick, pick. And she's like, Daddy, listen to me. I'm like, baby, I am listening to you. My ear's on the side of my head, and I got it, like, focused on you. And she's like, no. She'll reach over and grab me by the ears and turn me this way and go, listen with your face. <laughs> yes, ma'am, right? But she can get my face because she's my little girl and I'm her daddy. So face is, is very personal. Me and G go face to face, it's very personal. Very personal. You know what I mean. In fact, some of you, that's a problem with your marriage. There's not enough face to face. Sometimes you, you're doing all your marriage shoulder to shoulder. And you got to sometimes, all right? You got to go shoulder to shoulder so you can get stuff done and beat your kids and get them ready. But sometimes you got to lock them in the room and then go face to face. And some of you skip the face to face and try to go hip to hip, and that's when you get back to back. And you know what I'm saying? So that's just free, all right? Take that for what it's worth. But your face is important. It's, it's personal. Face is also intense, isn't it? So listen, I'm a fighter by nature. I just am. I, I've told you before, I will not be disqualified in the ministry. This church will not go down based on monies or honeys. I promise. Okay, a lot of guardrails. But I might kill a man on JTV or a Jags game. It just might happen. And one of the things that, I mean, when I get real fired up and people hear people running off of the mouth, I'll say this. I'll go, yeah, oh yeah, say it to my face. You ever said that? bunch of liars. You know you have. When you get real, say it in my face. That's what God's saying. God's like, you can't handle my face. You can't handle my face. I'll let you see my backside, kind of the afterglow of my glory, but Moses, right now, we're not there yet, okay? I know you're old school. I know you're old school, but, but, but you're kind of thinking new school. You're kind of thinking of what is to come one day, but you can't handle it right now. And the good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the glory of God is not a place, but a person. You see, this is, it's altogether different for us that the glory of God is not in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. It's not in the Holy of Holies or the Ark of the Covenant inside the temple. It's not in the tent of meeting where Moses and God used to hang out like friends. It's not up on Mount Sinai with lightning and thunder. It's not. that the, the glory of God is no longer a place that you go or pursue, but it is a person that actually pursues you. And I didn't make this up. Look, in the Gospels, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, In the Word, this is Jesus, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That the glory of God is seen in Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews chapter 1, verses, verse 3. And actually, all of Hebrews 1, that's, that's what it's talking about, but I don't have time to read it all. In verse 3, it says this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Or in John chapter 14, Philip is talking to Jesus. Jesus is talking about how he's got to go be crucified and resurrected on the third day. And apparently nobody's taking notes because they forgot all that part. And then Philip, scratching his head, and John 14 goes, Jesus, can you just show us the Father? And essentially Jesus is like, Philip, what is wrong with you? So by the way, if you ask stupid questions at church, you make a great disciple. It's all Jesus has been talking about for three years. And he goes, Philip, do you not know? That if you see me, you see the Father, because the Father is in me, and I in the Father. If you see me, you see the glory of God. Or my favorite passage on this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That God's glory is no longer a place, that the presence of God is no longer a place, but it's a person. And so if God were to stand down here at the end of the service with me when this service is over, and you were to walk up to him, and you were to say, all right, God, show me your glory. His response wouldn't be about clouds and lightning and all of that. He would get out his iPhone, and he would go to his family photos, and then he would say, there he is, in the face of my son, Jesus Christ. And so we have an access to the glory of God that Moses didn't even have. What we have access to is better. So I love singing that song, Show Me Your Glory. It's a great band from a great church out on the West Coast. That's all great. But, but it's really dumb for a Christian to say, I want to see your glory like Moses did. I don't. But you you want to be face-to-face with God or you just want to see the afterglow of his backside? That's all Moses had access to was a cloud and lightning and let me hide your face and kind of go by and oh, glory. But we get to come face to face with the almighty creator in the person of Jesus Christ. And that God's presence is not a place. God's presence is found in the glory, in the person, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is... I think the place, the place that this is um, best exemplified is in Matthew chapter 17. If you've got your Bibles or devices or whatever, go to Matthew chapter 17. It's called the Mountain of Transfiguration. And on the Mountain of Transfiguration, you see that the rules are beginning to change. That everything's beginning to change. And what we're going to see here is that the disciples are going to be able to experience the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, it says... And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Do you ever stop and ask yourself, why does Jesus keep picking the same three people? I mean, if, if there's some of you like, that's not very fair, Jesus. I mean, you've got a team of 12. Why don't you do four teams of three and let everybody get a chance to see something awesome? And Jesus is like, I don't really care about your feelings or being fair. It's not important to him. And so some people I've heard say, well, the reason that he picks these three is because he loves them the most. According to who? Well, doesn't. John, isn't John called the disciple that Jesus loved? Yes, in the book of John. <laughs> so I'm just saying, if you give yourself a nickname, it doesn't really count. That's what I'm saying. A friend of mine that passes the church in San Diego, he told me, he said, here's the reason I think that he keeps picking Peter, James, and John. I think these are the three boys he can't trust at camp alone. <laughs> right? He's like, boys, y'all stay here and pray. I'm going up on the mountainside. 
Peter, James, John, no, come here. You need a chaperone. Come with me. That's got to be right about Peter. So he takes these three that go up on the mountain, verse 2, and Jesus was transfigured before them. You know what that means? Me either. I don't know. Something's different. On the way up the mountain, there's Jesus, like we all know him, right? Blonde hair, blue eyes, Swedish, Miss America sash, British accent. Everybody knows that. And then he get, they get up on the mountain, and it's just, he's just different. He's, just cha- he's transfigured before him. And this is how Matthew describes it. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So Matthew, when he's writing this account, he's like, all right, when Jesus was up there and his face, it was like, what was it like? What was it like? He was like the biggest ball of fire that heats our solar system and and, and you can't even stare at long enough because it's just too bright. It's like being in the movies for a long time and then you you went to a matinee because you're 41 and it's cheaper and you walk outside and you're like, oh, God, it's just too bright. I can't see it. That's what it was like. I couldn't even stare at his face because the glory of the almighty deity is piercing through humanity and we got to see it for a second. Or you can go to Luke chapter 9. Luke writes about the same thing. And he says, in the NIV, it says that that the face of Jesus was like lightning. That these guys are on the mountain, and everything is kind of dark, and then out of nowhere, boom! And it kind of rattles you, and you're like, oh, that's so bright, like a thunderstorm here in Jacksonville. And you're like, we couldn't even stare at it because the glory of God was being revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And then, probably my favorite one, and you'll see why, in Mark chapter 9, Mark is kind of short and to the point in his book. It's the shortest one. And he says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Really, Mark? That's the best you could do? (laughs) So Matthew's talking about this, and it's like the sun. And Luke is talking about this, and it's like lightning bolts shooting it out of his eyes. And then Mark comes up, and he's like, that's brighter than any t-shirt in my top drawer. Whole drawer. It's like, like there's white, and then there's like whiter than a t-shirt. Yeah. I just feel like when I get to heaven, me and Mark will be tight. You know what I mean? That's my kind of dude. The good preachers will be with those other guys with colorful language, and then Mark's like, mm, T-shirt. All right, so, so that's going on, all right? So we're going to kind of stick with Matthew and Luke a little bit. So Jesus' face is just going crazy. And then, in verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, we, we discussed this on the first week of this series, all right? There's Moses and there's Elijah. And what they're talking about, according to Luke 9, is Jesus says, there's talking about their departure that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The word departure in English is exodus. So Jesus is talking to Moses about the exodus. Hey, Moses, good job. You were sent by God to set his people free of slavery and bondage and take them to tabernacle or dwell with God in the promised land. What you did historically and geographically in the Middle East, I am going to do eternally. That I am God, sent by God, to set the people free of sin, slavery, and bondage, and I'm going to take them to dwell or be with God in his presence forever and ever. Amen. That's what they're talking about. And not only are they just chatting this up, but the other disciples checking it out, they are freaking out. Because it's Moses and Elijah. And I know it's not a big deal to you, but to them, Moses, Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. And it's, it's the primary way the New Testament describes the Old Testament. The law and the prophets. 
And so the disciples are standing there seeing the Messiah, the New Testament, talking to the law and the prophets. The entire Bible is personified right here on top of this mountain with Jesus' face just bright as a very white t-shirt or lightning or sun. You get it? This is a big, big deal. Big deal. And then, and then, verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, listen, of all the things, all the times to keep your mouth shut, that's the time. You get it? There's Jesus, the Messiah, with his face glowing like the sun. There's Moses, who wrote the law. There's Isaiah, I mean, there's uh, Elijah, kind of the picture of the prophets. And then Peter, Peter's like, oh yeah, there's the king of kings, Messiah. There's the law, there's the pro- I should say something. And then he leans in and goes, it is very good to be here. Okay, just note, just jot this down. You're going to jot this down. If sometime this week you find yourself in the presence of the transfigured Christ and Moses who's been dead for 1,400 years and Elijah who's been dead at that point for 900 years and you see them talking, you should probably just shut up. It might not be about you in that moment. And do you ever find yourself, do you ever do this? I find this so, so much. Do you ever say something and as it's coming out, you're like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. And everybody in the room turns and looks at you and your mind is trying to tell your mouth, just stop now. Just stop the bleeding now. Just shut up. Sit back out in your seat. But do you ever do that? No. You think, I'll keep talking and make it exponentially worse. That's what I'll do. <laughs> That's what Peter does. Watch. Right as he leans in, it is good that we are here. And they're probably looking at him like, you've got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> and then he's go, if you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Is that a good idea? I mean, you know, we can make tents, right? You want to make tents? We, don't, we sleep on a cot. We can get a tent. One for Jesus, Mo, Eli. We'll make you a tent. What do you got? No? You see, here's why. You see, Peter's still thinking old school. Peter's still thinking that the presence of God is a place. And he thought, oh, we found it. This is it. Let's just stay here. Peter is still thinking that the presence of God is somehow up there on this mountain. And, and the truth is that the presence of God isn't a place, but it's a person. And if he wants to camp out there, the reality is, is that he's going to miss out on the presence of God as soon as the presence of God moves. By the way, there's a lot of church people that think that way too. A lot of church people come to church and they're like, oh, this is awesome. Oh, by the way, maybe when you come into church and the Spirit and the Father and Jesus are present in the songs and in the worship and the giving of tithes and offerings and the preaching and the receiving of the word, maybe, maybe it ain't about you. Maybe you don't lean in and go, I don't really, this is my favorite song. Really? Really? Because I think all of heaven looks at you and goes, hey, dude, you might want to just shut up for a minute, okay? It might not be about you. And so this brother's like, come on, we'll make tents, we'll camp out, it'll be awesome. We'll just leave everybody else behind. Verse 5, and while he was still speaking. So what, what's coming next is an interruption from God. Listen, he was still speaking, just can't shut up, right? No, really, tents be nice, mosquito nets, just make us up a... And while he's still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's Bible for shut up. That's what he just said. God steps in and is like, Peter, can you shut your mouth for just a second? The almighty king of the universe is chatting here. He's talking. Can you just keep your mouth shut? And God interrupts him and then like is this funny i think it's hilarious some of you read by the bible too quick don't think about what was actually happening here but the boys they didn't think it was funny at all 
Look what they do. Verse 6. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and they were terrified. You know why? Here's why. They're standing on a mountain. They know Exodus 33. Like, you might hear a sermon on it, but all of these boys grew up in Jewish school, so when they were 12 years old, they had to stand in front of their friends and teachers and family, and they had to quote, not a verse, but the entire, entire Torah, from the very beginning to the very end. And they know Exodus 33, and they know that the presence of God in this, in this cloud used to descend upon Moses, and that Moses said, show me your glory, and God said, all right, I'll show you the afterburners, all right, you can see clouds and lightning, but if you see my face, it will kill you. And then they look up, and the voice just said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and they saw his face, and it's like the sun, it's like lightning, it's brighter than Mark's t-shirts, this is a big deal going on, and they think, oh, we're dead. We are dead, and they fall on their face, and they're terrified, and that is worship. That is a legitimate response to who God is and what he's done up to that point in human history, and they fall on their face, and they worship. And so I'm telling you, when we come in this place, that's what we do. We respond to God for who he is and what he's done, for who he is and what he's done. And worship isn't always about just like getting what you want or singing prom songs to Jesus about how you want to slow dance with him. A lot of times we've got to lean into holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in this moment, they think they're dead. They're afraid and they think they're dead and they should. And if this was still under the old covenant, they're toast. It's over. There's the end of the story. We would all just go home. Kind of bummed, but we would all go home. And then, this is the good news of the gospel. Verse 7, but Jesus... But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw, they saw no one but Jesus only. And give me a little bit of slack here, but I believe when he reaches over and he taps them, he goes, Hey, boys, come on. Do not be afraid. They look up and they see the face of the Creator. And they, in that moment of worship, are taken back to the Garden of Eden with the very first human being. When he inhales for the very first time with the breath, the ruach, the pneuma of life. And he opens his eyes and he's face to face with his creator. Now, these boys on the mountain come face to face with their creator, Jesus. And it's a new day. It is a new day. And so we as Christians, we as believers, we as post-resurrection followers of Jesus, then we can say, show me your glory. And we see it in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do, that we get the opportunity to come face to face with Jesus. In verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, you see, these boys wanted to stay up on the top of the mountain because they thought the presence of God was a, was a place. And Jesus is saying, no, the presence of God is not a place, it's a person, it's me. And we're not going to stay up here on the mountain, we're going to descend down the mountain. Because this stuff's important. Encountering God on the mountain is important. But all the ministry is happening down there with the people. And so we're going to descend and go down the mountain. And he says, as they were going down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. Now, it could be because no one would believe him, right? I, I kind of think that Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, you might not want to talk about this because you're a liar. And everybody knows you're a liar, and you're going to start telling this story and be like, you ain't going to believe what happened. I was trying to build Jesus a tent, and then God was like, quit with your tent talk. Shut up. And people were like, man, we don't believe you because you're a liar. But, but there will be a day that you can talk about it. Check it out. It says, and they were coming down the mountain, and Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. What is that day? Easter. Good job. Everybody gets nervous. Like, ah, does the answer Jesus? It's always Jesus. No, sometimes it's not. It's Easter. So Jesus says, hey, boys, don't tell anybody until I pull Easter off. And then, and then what? Then tell everybody. 
Why? Because Easter's next week. Easter is next week. And here's the thing. Do you know what an advantage we have over those three disciples? Do you know what an advantage that we have over Moses and over those three disciples? That we don't walk down the mountain beside Jesus, but it's way better to have the Holy Spirit in you than have Jesus walking around beside you. It's better. And we walk down the mountain with the Spirit of God living in us. And if we have experienced the transfiguration of Jesus, in other words, if we've experienced the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, then we are commanded to just go and tell people. So here's the point. Please grab onto this. The good news, good news is just another word for gospel. The good news is not that we go up the mountaintop to seek the glory of God. That's how most of us were raised. That we see, it's like this religious ladder, and if you can climb it, you can get to the top of the mountain, and you can experience the glory of God. And if you went in one of those kind of churches, you didn't call it glory, it was glory, right? Like every letter you have to pronounce on, right? And it's exhausting. But the good news is not that you and I trek up this mountain to, to the top to seek the glory of God with special sacrifices and special rituals for special people that have some kind of special relationship with God. But that's not the gospel. But that His glory came down the mountain in search of us. That's the good news. And when you begin to understand that, that the presence, the transcendent presence of God is not found in a place or any kind of procedure, but it's found in the person, the life, work, and death, the life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then your response, one, is worship. That you fall on your face and you worship Him. When you understand the depths of your depravity and, and, the, and the glory and the holiness of God and that He chooses you anyway, and that He was willing to come down off that mountain while we were down at the bottom worshiping a bunch of idols, and He didn't just come down and say, try harder. He came down and said, I got this, and in this I got you, that it is finished. And our response is we worship Him. And our response is we come face to face with Jesus. And, and there's, there's a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God, that God manifested himself in Jesus Christ. The omnipresence of God means that God is in all places at all times. But, but the Bible says that there's something that happens when God's children, when the bride of Christ gathers together in places like this. And we know, man, we know better than a bunch of churches that it's not about the, the bricks and the mortar and the building. You know why? Because we are in Walmart. There's nothing sacred about this. This area was uh, ladies' accessories. I've had a number of people come up to me and say, do you know how much stuff I used to steal out of here? <laughs> and now this is where I meet Jesus. So it ain't, about the, it ain't about the place. But when the God's children gathered together to lift up the name of Jesus, His presence, I don't like to say God shows up because you can't show up where you already are. But, but I know what people mean when they say that. But God manifests Himself in our praises in such a way that we experience Him and we come face to face. And I hope that is your experience here week after week after week. I mean, we have amazingly talented worship leaders that do an incredible job of leading us into experiencing God's presence. You know, and I know I'm a little biased, but sometimes when Gretchen sings, you know, and, and she really goes for it and hits that high note, I'm talking about, I close my eyes and make that stink face, and I'm just like, glory to God. I mean, it just happens. I feel like if I open my eyes real fast, Jesus would be like, ha! I go, whoa, I just saw his face. That's what I feel like. I also know her story, and I know how she's, she has been changed by the presence of God, and, and years ago, she would have never stood in front of a group of people like that, so I see that part of it, too, and I'm just telling you, so I get it. Doesn't mean God's presence lives in here. His presence are in 
it's in the person of Jesus. And I know he's not confined to a certain space because on Friday I was going turkey hunting, see another hunting story. And I'm driving up to Woodbine and nobody's in the truck with me. And so I listen to this sermon, this podcast sermon by a guy named John Piper. If you don't know who John Piper is, please just, I feel like I fail you as a pastor if you don't know who he is. Um, he's a pastor up in, in Minnesota. Just Google him and he's intense, but get ready. And so I listened to this sermon that he had about how Jesus, the deity, was the, the glory of God. And he talked about how that, that becoming a Christian is not getting all the information and then making a decision whether you're going to follow him or not. What it really means is do you see the beauty, the glory of God in Jesus? And when you see the beauty in Jesus, then you have no choice but to respond. It's not just a decision that you make, but it's a response to his beauty. And I was like, God, I mean, he's so smart. I understood about half the words. And you know how it goes. When people talk over your head, you're like, oh, man, that must be so deep. I don't know what he's talking about, but it's awesome. And then I turned that off, and I'm on my phone, and I, I put on that song, Oceans. You know, I, I don't know if you're supposed to have favorite songs, but, man, we sing that song. I just get all, just, oh, and I'm playing that. Just 95 North, pulling into Woodbine, Georgia, just tears going down my eyes, my hands up, just worshiping. I'm just telling you. So I know God's presence is in a F-150 in Georgia, I promise, because I met him there. I met him there. And so when you experience that Jesus is the glory of God, you fall on your face in worship, you come face to face with Jesus, and then, and then you walk down the mountain, or in our context, you walk out of the church building, and you tell people, and you tell people, why? Because if you've experienced what every single one of us is looking for, the transcendent presence of our Creator, and you've experienced that in the person of Jesus Christ, you have to tell them. And you don't have to be weird about it. You don't have to use the language I use, right? You don't have to come out and say, listen, I've been transfigured in the manifest presence of God, and why don't you come and experience the radiant glory that is this? And they'll be like, I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. You know what might be just as good? It's just this simple invitation. Hey, why don't you just come and see I mean, seriously, why don't you just come and see and, you, and just check this out for yourself. Make up your own mind. You can't really, but you can tell them that. Just come and see and make up your own mind. Because while I am all for equipping you to be able to declare the gospel and demonstrate the gospel and explain the nuances of the gospel, and while I am all for equipping you to when some atheist coworker of yours gives you some zinger about a dinosaur or something that you've got one back at him, and you, know, and you look like the smartest person in your office, I'm for all those things. But the reality is, is none of those things changes anybody. Only an encounter with the presence of the glory of God found in the person of Jesus Christ is the only thing that changes anybody's life. And so what you and I do when we come down off of the mountain of that experience where we've fallen on our faces in worship and we come face to face with the Almighty is you walk out of the place and then you go, hey, listen, I'm going back. Why don't you come with me? And we'll just see. We'll just see. We'll just see if God manifests himself to you like, like he has to me. And there's no better time to do that than Easter. Everybody's making Easter plans. I, I, you know, we're going to invite people to do that. You know why? Because it really matters. And... The good news, the good news is that God's presence is not a place. It's not reserved for special people that are super spiritual, that know all the rituals and the insides and out, that the presence of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ, and he came to seek and save people like us. And so when you come off the mountain, and again, I hope you experience God in this place. I hope God is pleased when we get together and sing and pray and bring our tithes and offerings and preach and hear the word. I hope he's very, very pleased. 
And I know, that he, I know that he manifests himself here over and over and over and over because so many of you have met Jesus here and he's transformed you forever. But don't ever think that the presence of God is a place that is the person of Jesus. The glory of God is not something that you seek after. The glory of God came and saw after you. So I'm going to close with a prayer. I mean, I always pray at the end of services. But I'm going to read a prayer, which I don't really do that much. I don't know if you're supposed to, but whatever. And I don't even know how to do it. I don't know if you're reading somebody else's prayer. If we're supposed to bow our heads and close our eyes, I don't know the rules. And nobody in the Bible bows our head or closes their eyes. So I don't know who made that up, but apparently I like it because I tell you to do it all the time. All right, so it's in this article by John Piper called Jesus is the Glory of God, the Deity of Jesus Christ. And he ends it with this prayer. If it helps you to close your eyes and bow your head, that's fine. Or if you just want to look at me read it, that's fine too. But I just need you to know that the presence of God, the glory of God, is not a place. If we were to say to God, God, show me your glory, he would say, I demonstrated it for you in this, that while you're a sinner, Christ died on the cross. That my glory is found in the person, the relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's his prayer. Eternal Father, you never had a beginning. You will never have an ending. You are the Alpha and the Omega. This we believe because you have revealed it to us. Our hearts leap up with gratitude that you have opened our eyes to see and know that Jesus Christ is your eternal, divine Son, begotten, not made, and that Jesus is the glory of God. You, O Father, and He, your Son, are one God. We tremble even to take such glorious truths on our lips for fear of dishonoring you with withering and inadequate words. But we must speak because we must praise you. Silence would shame us and the rocks themselves would cry out. You must be praised for who you are in the world that you have made. And we must thank you because you have made us taste and see the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son. Oh, to know him. Father, we long to know Him. Banish from our minds low thoughts of Christ. Saturate our souls with the Spirit of Christ and all His greatness. Enlarge our capacities to be satisfied in all that You are for us in Him. Where flesh and blood are impotent, reveal to us the Christ and rivet our attention and our affections on the truth and beauty of Your all-glorious Son. And grant that whether rich or poor, sick or sound, that we might be transformed by Him and become an echo of His excellence in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand to your feet as we respond to who God is and what He has done in Christ. We respond by bringing tithes and offerings. We respond by praying. We respond by lifting our voices together to the preeminent Christ. Let us respond.